Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And so we're going to be looking at a rather well-known story today that even if you're not yet a Christian, you may have heard of, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, a huge multitude of people, and multiplies bread and fishes for them to eat and in the hillside. And so we're going to be reading through that and thinking about how that applies to us today. And if you're using that Bible that's in the chair in front of you and you're not that used to looking up Bible passages, you can find that on page 841. I'd love for you to, to look at that and follow along with us. And as you're, as you're finding uh, Mark chapter 6, in just a moment I'm going to read it and then uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to, we're going to look at this text and how it applies to us. But here's what I'm going to do this morning, because we, let's admit, we have some challenges today, because this is one of our, first of all, I know the aisles are still messing some of you up, but, but beyond that, this is, this is such a well-known passage of Scripture that I think that one of the challenges many of us have, if we have any sort of church time in us, and if you don't, that's fine, I'm glad that you're here, you're actually going to be in an advantage this morning, maybe to some degree is that we think we know the story so well that we sort of skim over it. And because we're Americans and because we live in a sort of very um, individual-centric world, we tend to almost subconsciously read ourselves as the center of the story. And so I venture to say that many of us maybe grew up in a context where we think, oh, well, Jesus feeds the multitudes by multiplying the loaves and the fishes, and so... Sort of the overarching point here is that if we just give Jesus, and it doesn't give this much detail on the account in Mark that we're going to read, but it does in some of the other Gospels, where if we would just give Jesus you know, our little bit, because the disciples go and they find in one sense this little boy, and in our account here, the, Jesus, the, the disciples find a few fish and a couple loaves, and, and they bring it to Jesus, and then he multiplies it. And so I think instinctively maybe we think, oh, well, the point of the story is, is that if I will give Jesus what I have, then he will multiply. And it's almost as if Jesus is sort of a supporting actor and whether or not we bring it or not is sort of the main point of the story. Now, granted, that is part of the truth that we're going to look at today, but it's certainly not the, the, the center of the truth. It's kind of like, you know, if you live in America and you look at an atlas of the world, like the American continent is in the middle, which I think is actually quite appropriate. But, but we're not... We're not Americans compared to the rest of the world when we come to God's scriptures. Jesus, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the center of the scriptures. And the point of every story and everything works its way out from that. And so with that as a sort of confession of a challenge before us, um, let's read this. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the three points. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to work back through these three points. So I want us to see three things primarily today. I want us to see that And you can list these up on the screen here uh, right off the get-go. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. I want us to see how he treats people that were were just scurrying around uh, like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. The ministry is impossible apart from Jesus. We're going to see that, Lord willing. And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, only Jesus can truly satisfy Only Jesus can truly satisfy the hunger in our soul. 
Well, in just a moment, I'm going to read, but before I read, um, let me mention, and I'll pray about this in just a moment, but um, as you know, this is a holiday weekend. Many of our Army guys are away on a four-day training holiday, and it's a national holiday remembering Martin Luther King's birthday, and uh, I, th- I guess we're calling it Civil Rights um, Holiday now, or I'm not sure what, what exactly the correct phrase is, but... Uh, I want us as a congregation to always be aware that the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done, it smashes the racial barriers between people. And one of our great hopes here at Crosspoint is that God would be so kind to us as to do that, to make Crosspoint a little, a little outpost of what heaven will look like, where there's people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and that we live in a city uh, that has, like many southern cities that had mill towns and cotton mills that were uh, worked by slaves back in the 1800s. Although, of course, we do not have maybe any laws on our books that would separate people in such an evil way, we still have some of that in our hearts and in our culture. In fact, the wood of this pulpit and the wood of those crosses that Daniel Hoard, a member of this church, made a few years ago is wood that came from the old Eagle and Phoenix Mill on the river. That's probably wood that may have been in those mills in the 1800s where, where slaves worked the cotton gins. And I think part of what happens when God descends on a people and the gospel starts to take root that, that people from every tribe and nation and tongue and white people and black people and Asian people and Latino people and all sorts of other people come and they worship God together. And that's one of our hopes here at Crosspoint. And so in just a moment as I pray for us to wrestle with this text. And let's pray for our nation on this uh, celebration of, of the civil rights uh, movement in our country that God would, would make us a sort of outpost of heaven here in our time. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come to your word confessing that we often subconsciously make ourselves the center of things in the center of the story. But the truth is, is that you are the center of all things. And you and your love and your grace and the satisfaction that can only come through trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross to reconcile your people to yourself is the only truth that can satisfy the gnawing hunger of our souls. So we come asking for your help for us to see that and to revel in that. I pray for the Christians in this room that as we see that truth, that it would encourage us and warm our hearts so that we would worship you more passionately and that our lives would reflect your glory more fully. And for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would hold up the word of life and a picture of Jesus as the bread from heaven, that that picture would be irresistible in its loveliness 
and that people that do not know Jesus would, would be given a new heart and they would be given a heart that is able to believe and ears that are able to hear so that they would turn away, that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they can turn away from trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus. And Lord, finally, we do pray on this holiday weekend where we re-remember the civil rights movement in our country. We pray, Lord, that as the gospel takes deeper root in our lives as Christians and as a church family called Crosspoint, that one of the graces that you would give us is that we would be a little slice, a little outpost of the things which are to come where every tribe and nation and tongue and color will come around and we will all be blended into one ethnicity in Christ. And Lord, we pray for our city. We pray, Lord, for the mindsets and the sinful uh, cultural things that still grip us. And Lord, we pray that um, you would make Crosspoint and many other churches around our city a beacon of gospel truth. I pray for my friend David Hardwick at Gentian Baptist Church on Milgen Road as he's in the first few months of his pastorate there that he would preach the word with power this morning and that you would give him and that congregation grace. I pray for the downtown churches. Lord, that you would... Um, encourage those congregations and that they would see Jesus in his loveliness and that you would give those pastors a clarity on the gospel. I pray, Lord, for the African-American, the predominantly African-American churches in our city, that you would give great grace and, and power to the words spoken in those pulpits today and that many in those congregations would come to see and savor and trust and love Jesus. And now help us as we come to your word, think deeply about Jesus and how he alone can satisfy. And I pray these things in his strong name. Amen. Well, let's read in verse 30. Now, where we are, remember in the progression of the story here in Mark is that Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 6, has sent his disciples out, the 12, for their first missionary journey. And then there was this sort of little interlude, a little story that seems kind of unrelated, but actually it was very related, where it was a recounting of, and this is what we looked at last week, where John the Baptist uh, lost his head at Herod's birthday party. And although that was recounting an event that had happened before, shortly before Jesus sent out his disciples, I think part of the reason why Mark inserts that in the chapter here is to give Christians uh, shortly after that would be reading this, this gospel and then us 2,000 years later, this realization that, that the world hates the gospel and the world hates the things of Christ and John the Baptist, in fact, loses his head for his stand for truth. And now in verse 30, we're returning to these disciples that Jesus sent out at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, and they're coming back to Jesus after this sort of extended period of exhausting ministry. And as we're reading this, I want us to just notice the contrast between the banquet that Herod threw, the, the sinful 
just debauchery of his banquet where his stepdaughter does a little dance for him and it basically seduces his mind, which then causes him to chop off John the Baptist's head. And contrast that, really, the, the debauchery of that meal with the humble meal of Jesus, the true king, in the desolate wilderness that we'll read about today. So let's read in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. All right, so many of us have heard this story before, but I mean, come on, let's slow down and think about what's, what's going on here. The first thing I want us to see is Point number one that we talked about at the very beginning is that Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. So let's get into this scene a little bit. The the disciples have been away ministering as he sent them away to minister at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. And now they're coming back. In verse 30 it says they return to Jesus. And you can imagine their slash excitement and exhaustion where they're telling him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus, in this flurry of activity, this frenetic pace of the disciples' first missionary journey, tells them to come away and rest. Jesus is a good and kind, compassionate shepherd, even to these these first missionaries that are going out and working for him. And and think about our pace of life as Americans, how I think, in in a way, it's been very good for our culture and society, how we value work. But think about how Jesus is valuing and pointing out to them that you can't just work yourself into the ground. He calls for them to, to get away, to have a little, almost a little, a little respite, a little a retreat to come away and, and have rest. And then notice that, that and, and this strikes me because I, I have 
maybe had to work on patience sometimes, maybe with a child interrupting me when I wanted to study or something along those lines. I don't know, occasionally. Um, but notice that Jesus has sort of arranged this ministry retreat for his disciples. Okay, so they're getting on this boat. They've come back. It's like Jesus is waiting for the boys to come back and tell them all that has happened. He's, you know, he's rented this boat, or maybe it was Peter's or whatever, and now they're going to get away. Verse 32, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So, so Jesus is thinking, okay, with these 12, I'm, we're going to debrief. We're going to chill out for a little while. We're going you know, to sleep in. And we're going to you know, kind of let them unwind. But the crowd was out and about. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So then when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now if I had you know, sent out a group and we had really worked hard and it had been a few weeks and we wanted to debrief and kind of come back to camp, you know, I mean, I'd be like, not now, crowds. But notice the patience of Jesus when they interrupted his plans. There's no, like, there's no contrast that kind of with the sort of entourage mentality of sort of stardom or even, you know, just ministries that get kind of large, you know, where you, you, know, you, you kind of see a pastor and he sort of travels around with a group of people around him like there's no way to get to him and, and just everything seems so important and so off in the distance. And, and yet Jesus is, is seemingly unfrustrated when these people interrupt his plans and he it says there look at verse 34 it says when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them i think most of us would have been frustrated ah can you give us a weekend off i mean when do we get a four-day training holiday sergeant major when do we get it i mean can't we get away but yet he's, he's not frustrated with them. And it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. Now, now listen, notice what's going on here. Have you ever wondered, what are 5,000 people doing wandering out in the wilderness? And actually, it m- probably wasn't 5,000 people. The way they numbered people back in biblical times was it was just the numbering of the heads of households. So at the end, we see 5,000 men. So... Very likely it could have been, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine thousand people. Who knows? But still, let's just go with five thousand men and maybe some women and children. <laughs> what are five thousand people doing wandering out on the hillside? What's happening here, and we don't get this sense from Mark's accounting of this story, but we do get it from John's, which we'll read in, in a little while. In John chapter 6, the gospel writer John, the disciple John, tells this same story. And what's happening here in John chapter 6, in John's account of it, is he's saying that not only are they following him around, but they were at that moment ready to take him by force to make him king. And so what's happening is, is that Jesus, this great Jewish leader, is starting to teach and get notoriety. And King Herod, this pagan king, is lopping off the head of one of their new prophets, John the Baptist. And so they're thinking, is this Jesus going to be like one of our Old Testament leaders, like Moses or Joshua, to come and to rid us from this political oppression of the Roman Empire? And so what's happening is, is that these 5,000 men are actually in a region where Jesus gets off the boat there. They're in a region that was known for zealot-like activity. So this is... 
This is kind of like the Waco, Texas of biblical times. So, so they're like, you know, they're gathering the arms, right? They're stockpiling munitions. And what's, what's afoot here is not just a bunch of ignorant people wandering around in the woods wondering whether or not Jesus is going to get off the boat. What's afoot here is the seeds of a revolution. They are ready to make Jesus king so that he can overthrow the Roman Empire and they can be restored to the rightful rulers of their land. In fact, Jesus quotes, Mark quotes, the very words in the book of Numbers where at the end of Moses' life he looked across over the people and he saw them and it says Moses saw them as people, as sheep without a shepherd. And then Moses and God tells Moses to lay his hands on Joshua and appoint Joshua as this military leader to finish the mission and to take God's people into the promised land. And so Mark is actually identifying Jesus with Moses. Moses is this, this Old Testament historic leader that defeats God's enemies and leads God's people through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and dies before they get into the promised land. And then looking out amongst the people, sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and appoints a new young leader, Joshua, to finish the military task of the conquest. So Jesus is, is Mark, the gospel writer, is, is, he's connecting Moses and Jesus, but Jesus is not just a different type of Moses. He is, not, he is the new and better. He is the true fulfillment of the king that Israel and God's people really need. Not the military leader that's just coming to win another battle, but a military leader, a, a spiritual leader who's not coming to arm them with swords and knives, but to arm them with the word of God. It says that he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And he began to not give them swords so that they could rise up against Rome. But he began to give them his words so that they could fight the true battle that God's people face, which is not Babylon or Egypt or Rome or Washington, D.C., but with Satan and evil and sin. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. He descends into the frantic, nervous, anxious lives of his people and he gives order and I think that is so appropriate for us as Americans. I mean, are we not like little mice in a middle school science experiment? <laughs> Jennifer was, our kids are going through their science projects in middle school and Jennifer, I overheard her recounting to our children where in middle school, uh, she did a science experiment with, uh, can I tell this story? It's kind of too far, I'm too far into it now. Where, where Jennifer's science experiment was to uh, gauge the effects of alcohol on, on mice. And so evidently um, her and her dad maybe gave one or too many drops to this mice, gave it a couple sips of vodka, and Jennifer said that the little thing just ran around in its cage for about five minutes and keeled over dead. <laughs> 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 um, we're not going to do that with our children. Um, but, I mean, come on now. I mean, aren't we, I mean, I'm not, I'm not I mean, I know that's funny. <laughs> that is funny. Uh, I, might, I might get talked to after the service on recounting that story. But think about, I mean, are we not like little frenetic 
lab animals sometimes like that are just souped up on caffeine and just boom, 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 boom. We're just going, man. We got to work. We got to work, man. We got to work. And the idol of our age is work and busyness. And, and God forbid you be able to stand for more than two minutes in a crowd without checking your phone because you might be getting an email from a Christian in Africa who needs to send you to send them $6 million. And so none of us, I mean, none, we can't even stand in a crowd without acting like we're busy or important, can we? And Jesus descends into the young, into the, to the young military guy's life who's just, who just thinks that he's got to work his way up to the top. He descends into the young executive at Synovus or Affleck. He descends into the young mother who's anxious because she thinks that she's missing something on the motherhood train. And she's just scattered. And she wonders whether or not she's doing enough. Just He descends into the frantic anxious pace of his people's lives and he begins to have compassion on them and teach them and that's what he does to us jesus is a compassionate shepherd who isn't there just to arm us with a sword to get through the momentary problem but he arms us with his word so that we can fight evil for all the ages we also see point number two, that ministry is impossible apart from Jesus. I, I, I love this part because this is one of those times, many times in the Bible, especially in Jesus' interactions with his disciples where you just wish you could have been a fly on the wall. You know? So he's, you know, it's growing late, verse 35. Uh, Jesus has been teaching them. And uh, his, his disciples are starting to wonder about the logistics, okay? This revolutionary crowd has come out to make Jesus king. He seems to have quelled that revolutionary fervor. He's got them, you know, he's got them at least kind of calmed down listening. But they're out in the middle of nowhere, a desolate place, and it's starting to get dark. And so, so, so they, they, I think, come up with a pretty good suggestion. Verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And in verse 37, it says, but he answered them, meaning Jesus, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Friends, that is not a sincere rejoinder. That is a somewhat sarcastic response. 200 denarii worth of food is about seven to eight months wages. It's kind of like, ha, 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 Jesus, where are we going to get that? I mean, there's a little bit of tension in the air. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then in verse 39, it says, then he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And by the way, there's another little important point there. That's just like what Moses did in the Old Testament when he organized God's people into these, these groups so that people could lead them in numbers. So there's this connection. Don't think that the Old Testament is sort of these strange stories about a wrathful God and then all of a sudden, oh boy, that was strange. Oh, good, now we got to the New Testament and Jesus is kind and compassionate. No, the, the Bible is one whole story where in the Old Testament, God is displaying his mercy and his holiness and pointing forward to that time when redemption will fully come. So all of these Old Testament types like Moses and David, who are these great leaders but flawed and ultimately fail, 
are pointing us to yearn for and long for the true king, the true shepherd, the true leader that we need, which is God himself and Jesus, the Son of God. And so he commands them all to sit down. And then notice this, verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And then that's all that it says, really, of the miracle. So what's happening here is, is Jesus is showing. It's like he is, he is leading the disciples into an encounter with their own helplessness and futility. Like he's setting that scene up. Jesus is he's showing them that they can't do it. In fact, it's even a sarcastic exchange. You give them something to eat. Silence. Crickets chirping. Ha, ha, ha. How are we going to do that, Jesus? I mean, that's not even funny, Jesus. You know we can't do that. That's the point, is that Jesus leads his disciples and he leads his people today to realize and come to this point of futility where we have to realize that ministry or in fact life in general is impossible, it's futile apart from Jesus. In fact, one commentator said that the limitations, the inadequacy is the only thing that really qualifies us to be used by Jesus. The fact that we can't do it, and Jesus is looking for people that can't do it because when they come to that realization that they can't do it, then the pump is primed for Jesus to receive all the glory. So do you see that? I mean, they don't have anything. They don't have any pocket change. They didn't bring anything with them. The hour has ran late. The situation is impossible. And with man, all things are, things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Jesus is bringing them to this point where they realize this. You notice also how unspectacular the miracle is? I mean, come on now. If you had the power of the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, wouldn't you jazz it up a tad? <laughs> but it almost seems, it's like nondescript. In fact, it doesn't really even say how he did it. Just in the inadequacy of the disciples and their lack, but with their even begrudging, sarcastic obedience, very nondescriptively, Jesus just multiplies the fish and the loaves. I mean, come on, wouldn't you think that he would do something kind of more awesome, <laughs> you know, but he doesn't. In fact, all of his miracles, they're not just awesome displays of his naked power, they're always tied to some redemptive purpose. And in this case, they're tied to show that Jesus is not just the one who can satisfy a temporary hungry stomach, but it's pointing to how Jesus is the true bread that comes down from heaven and he uses people that can't do it to show that he can do it and, and I think that I wrote this down generally I just have a few notes and I think about it all week and I am a little bit more spontaneous but I, I wrote this down 
about the impossibility of not just ministry, but also just life apart from Jesus and how, how, how unfamiliar most of us are with these feelings of inadequacy or how we run from them. I think many of us are familiar with them, but we run from them. How quickly, I wrote this down, how quickly we try to avoid this inadequacy in our lives. We can just pay for it. We can order it on the internet. We can contract it out. This is the main mode for many Christians, not just when we attempt to do ministry. We are so used to getting our problems solved immediately because of our resources that we never really learn to listen and wrestle with our own futility, and thus we've never really learned to trust in Jesus for the impossible. Are we like that? My, my personal nervousness about my ministry as a pastor and about our life as a church, in, the, in one sense I praise God because he's been so good to us, but in another sense I wonder, God, has this made me, has it made us sort of lazy and self-absorbed? Have we ever really had to stare our inadequacy in the face so that we are pushed by the kind hand of God into staring into our inadequacy and leaning completely and wholly on Jesus. Friends, that is a good thing, but we have been programmed as Americans to believe that inadequacy is a bad thing and a weakness to be shielded, when in reality, it postures us for God to do great things through us. So, let's land that point. Let's not just keep it up here. Is there some habit that you just can't quit? Is there some sin that you cannot overcome? Is there some calling that you feel inadequate to fulfill? Is there some loved one that you feel will never turn and trust in Jesus? Is there some marriage that is seemingly so far gone that it cannot be rescued and ever fulfilling and joyful in Christ. Friends, I think one of the things that the Lord is teaching us in this is that we should press into and allow ourselves to feel that inadequacy and to realize that part of that is God ordained to bring us to this place where we finally say, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. I can't live for you on my own. Like I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough gifts. I don't have enough intelligence. I don't have enough willpower. I don't, I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have it. And friends, that is exactly where Jesus is bringing his disciples in this scene, and it is exactly where he wants us to be, because when we finally unclench the white-knuckled grip of the wheel of our lives, finally, Jesus can come and he can take hold and do the impossible. I even like that air conditioner when it snaps on. And here's why. Because I think that air conditioning is part of our problem. It's part of our problem. I mean, we, the air conditioner doesn't work. Call somebody to fix it. <laughs> 
DirecTV satellite is out, get the repairman out. My food's not hot. My steak's not done. Send it back. Because we're used to getting everything we want, and the moment we butt up against hardship, we get all flustered because we are the most self-absorbed people in the history of civilization. And Jesus wants to bring us to a point where we don't have stuff, man. We don't have air conditioning. We don't have seats with aisles. We don't have lights. We don't have a screen. We don't have a Bible in front of us. We don't got deodorant. We don't got toothbrushes. We don't got anything, man. We don't got bank accounts. We don't got cars that you can open and start from 50 feet away with a silly little button. We don't have microwaves. We don't have anything. We don't have internet. We don't have iPads. We don't have Macintosh programming our lives, telling us when we should buy the next product. All we got is Jesus. And friends, that is a blessing, not a curse. We, life, ministry, fighting sin, being a Christian is impossible apart from Jesus. And he wants to bring us to a point of futility and failure until we see that. May God do that in our lives and in the life of this church, even if it makes us uncomfortable. God, would you do that in me and in us? And finally, thank you, air conditioning, for that God-ordained coming on to hammer that point home. Thirdly, only Jesus can truly satisfy Friends, the point of this story is not that 5,000 or 7,000 or 9,000 hungry bellies got one dinner. The point of this story is that Jesus is the true bread that satisfies our hungry souls. Contrast this meal in this desolate place with the meal that we read about last week. Herod has a lavish banquet hall full of the finest of foods. Jesus has these poor, confused people in a desolate place on a dusty hillside, and all they have is bread and fish. But whereas Herod went away troubled and perplexed, and absorbed in sin, and John lost his head. At the end of this banquet, this humble banquet, it says that all went away satisfied. This world tempts us with things that promise satisfaction, but can never deliver. What is it for you, friends? Is it, is it just the next rung up the ladder? Is it, is it the... The, the boy that will finally come along and ask you to marry him? Is it, is, it, is it for you young lieutenants? And I know most of you are probably out on 40 weekends, but if you're here, maybe you didn't have anywhere to go. Is it, is it a ranger tab? Is that the thing that just that will satisfy you? Is it a CIB? Is it a combat infantryman badge? Is it a patch on your right shoulder? Is that what will satisfy you? Is it, is it, is it some fitness goal? Is it looking like the cover of the magazine? Is it, is it some economic financial status? Is it, is it what is it? What, what are these things that tempt us? And in and of themselves, see, this is where it becomes hard to, 
to discern because in and of themselves, those things can be good, gracious gifts that God gives us to display his glory in our lives. But, but when we turn them upside down and we begin to worship those things, they become like Herod's banquet. They, they never, they're food that never satisfies. And Jesus is showing us here that he is the bread He alone is the bread that can truly satisfy. This is the way John puts it in his gospel and his accounting of this this meal out in the woods. Jesus says in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst Friends, what do we thirst for? What are you thirsting for? What are you hungering for even now? Jesus is the only bread. He's the only meal that can ever satisfy. And you say, okay, Brad, I, I have this sort of hole in my soul and I realize I'm hungry for something. How do I, like, what do I do? Friends, this is the good news. If Jesus is the one who gives, like he doesn't say come hungry. He gives hunger. He gives a sense of desolation so that it gives a sense of desperation so that we might trust in him. So are you hungering right now? Are you, are you even sensing that your life is incomplete? Friends, I believe that very well may be the grace of God that right now is hitting your soul, bringing you alive by his grace and giving you the gift of faith so that you can turn away from trusting in yourself. You can turn away from broken false bread that never satisfies and you can look to Jesus right now. That's the good news, the scandal of the grace of the gospel. It's not come with something to qualify yourself. Come, just come and he gives you the very hunger that you need, friends. That's the good news of the gospel. So, so look, look away from yourself. Is there even an inkling? Is there even an inkling, even a hunger in your soul for something that you know is not of this world? Friends, that very well may be. In fact, I think it very much is the grace of God right now bringing you alive and giving you the gift of faith and repentance so that you can turn away and look and feast on the only bread that satisfies, which is Jesus. And here's what Jesus has done for you if he's giving you that hunger. He, just like he broke that bread on that hillside on that day, he allows his body to be broken for you so that all of your failures, all of your shortcomings, all of your sin, all of your rebellion, and all the punishment that should be yours is heaped on his body on the cross, and he absorbs God's judgment for his people and he satisfies our punishment and he dies extinguishing the punishment that should be ours. And then he rises again in victory over sin and death and the grave and all of its consequences and now is alive and commands you to feed on him and trust in him. So it's not come to Jesus Eat this bread and you'll be satisfied. Now you've got to keep it going because a little bit of you made it happen. No, no. He satisfies everything that God requires of you. Have, you. have you looked to that bread this morning? Christian, 
Are you satisfied in Jesus? Friend that came into this room, not yet a believer, are you hungry? Look to Jesus even now. He alone can satisfy. And if you sense that happening in your heart, here's what you need to do. You need to say to Jesus in your own words, to the Father, Father, forgive me. Come and fill my soul with Jesus. I turn away from trusting in myself and I trust and believe that what Jesus did on the cross alone can make me right with you and satisfy my soul. I come to you now, Jesus, hungry. Say that, say that even now. And if you say that in faith, I believe that the Lord will satisfy your soul and answer that prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to these words, Lord, I pray that you would give us the kind grace of a dose of reality that you would deprogram us from our self-sufficiency and that you would show us how desperately we need you, that we can't do life apart from you, that we need, we need you. We need you not only to save us, but we need you to sustain us. We need, we need you to, to give us the very breath that we're breathing now. And, and Lord, I pray that you, not that you would pep us up with a little self-esteem talk, but that you would actually you would actually show us just how desperate we are and that that futility would not produce in us sort of a self-absorbed depression, but that it would produce in us a release to finally let go of ourselves so that we can grab a hold of you. Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you do that for Christians who need to remember this truth? And would you do that for my friends that came into this room not believing, but by your kind, sovereign grace, Lord, you have given them a new heart so that they can hunger for you. Lord, would you give them that heart so that they can believe and finally let go of themselves and the false bread, the, the molded bread, the, the counterfeit bread of this world and grab a hold of Jesus and turn to him and trust in him and believe in him and hunger for him and be made new in him. Father, would you do that? Lord, would you do that? Father, would you do that for the glory of your name and for the good of your people? I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and King and satisfying bread. Amen.